At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and it is great to have you along. Just ahead on the program, we'll hear about the hands-on sensory experience in Buckhead, known as the Slumu Institute. Then later, our series Speaking of Art highlights Fabian Williams, and later still, Christian Cave of Caveman Wildlife joins us for our new bi-monthly series, Expedition Atlanta. First, the Italian-American pioneering artist Joseph Stella was born in Italy in 1877. He made his way to New York in 1896, and by 1913, he was acclaimed for his daring depictions of New York City. His futurist-inspired paintings of modern life were well ahead of their time, and although he painted a wide array of subjects, the exhibition Joseph Stella, Visionary Nature is the first major museum exhibition dedicated solely to his nature paintings. The show is on view now through May 21st at the High Museum of Art. Recently, City Lights host Lois Reitzes spoke with Stephanie Haidt, the curator of American art and lead exhibition curator at the High Museum. Haidt began by explaining how Joseph Stella's background informed his art. Joseph Stella's association, I think, with his Italian heritage is one reason why nature just seems so present for him all the time. Um, as you mentioned in your introduction, he comes to the United States as a young man. His formative years in Italy, though, are always impressing upon him an influence. He writes about it later in life, about just dreaming of and thinking of Italy, the sun-filled landscapes, the flowers and trees and all of that. It, it infuses his identity for his entire career, but it's not really until after he explores his initial curiosity about the American city, about Brooklyn Bridge, his most famous painting, Coney Island, and other major works, that he returns to this theme of nature. And then once he's painting it, it becomes present, so much so that it really is his foremost theme after about 1920. Mm. Joseph Stella has mostly been called a modernist. How would you describe his works within the category of modernism? 
Stella is really hard to pin down. He's one of the first American painters or painters working in the United States who explores futurism, which is a form of abstraction. He explores abstraction fairly early on within the American oeuvre. And so he's a leader. People are looking to him for his interesting and diverse styles. But all the while, he never really announces a singular style. And that's one of the I think aspects of of Stella's modernism that's so unique and is that he doesn't feel that he needs to stick with a particular kind of abstract expression. He returns to figural work. He archaicizes some of his styles. He's all over the place. He's working in, in both literal and abstract ways throughout his career. And I think in my mind, that's one of the, the reasons why he does seem so modern is that he's not afraid to experiment. Mm. I'm curious about your first encounter with Joseph Stella and your response to his work, Stephanie? Well, like many who do know Stella, my first encounter with him was at a museum that had one of his great Brooklyn Bridge paintings. At the Whitney, for example, I really fell in love with their late Stella Brooklyn Bridge and at the Boston MFA. So when I arrived here at the High Museum as the Curator of American Art, I was really kind of stunned by our great painting, Purissima, which he painted in 1927. And really, it looks like a Madonna figure. Um, and she's set before the Bay of Naples. It's, you know, very clearly a very visionary kind of imaginary scene that also seems to have very personal, almost idiosyncratic expressions of, of the artist's interests. And so that really piqued my interest. I mean, I loved the Brooklyn Bridges, but this Purissima was was so bizarre in many ways, unexpected. And then I came to, to realize that we had actually a nice collection of, of works by Stella, things that you could almost mistake for being made by the hand of an old master from the Renaissance to this, you know, very expressive, semi-archaic kind of work that is purissima. And so, yeah, I was just really fascinated about who, you know, who could swing on the pendulum so so drastically between these varying styles. And that's really how I, I came to appreciate and want to know more about Joseph Stella. So let's hear more about why nature is the focus of this exhibition. I mentioned it is the first major museum show dedicated to his nature paintings. Well, I think so much focus has really landed on Stella's contributions to painting of you know, the American modern scene. So I mentioned his Brooklyn Bridges probably as his most famous works, and he made six of them over the course of his career, in addition to many, many studies, but six major works that are all in museums at this point. And in his own time, this is what propelled him to international fame. Uh, people knew his name in, in Paris, as they did in New York and Chicago and all, all over the place. But interestingly, and I found this really compelling, the vast majority of what he paints over the course of his career are these nature-based works. They range in subject. So you have everything from your tabletop still life to these imaginary cathedrals made of flowers and 
and trees. He was exploring all sorts of subjects that were just beyond the expectations of the the normal realm. And I think partly why people haven't paid as much attention to these works is that they're really hard to unpack. He doesn't offer a lot of clues as to meaning. Uh, You see some of the same themes appear and reappear over the decades. Little birds, almost exactly the same ones, appear in multiple pictures. For example, his sparrows, you know, you see them in early pictures, you see them in pictures that he made 20 years later in almost the exact form, but we don't know why. You know, lilies, swans, you know, all these details appear and reappear, but he, he never really offers any specific guideposts as to what and why he was trying to accomplish with these paintings. And I think the opportunity to spend a little time with them and to to see them, you know, to see what he produced over the course of really a 20 to 30 year span, I would say it shed a little bit of light onto it. But it also, I think for me, mostly expanded my appreciation for Stella. And in addition to that, interestingly, I think part of my outcome or my result in spending some some of this time deeply focusing was that, in fact, it's not two worlds that he's creating here, this world about American modernity and this world about nature, but in fact, they're much more interconnected for the artist. And if you spend some time with a painting, you can, you know, any really most examples, you can see how these languages that he was developing was really just one language. And so I think it's important to look at the nature pictures as a holistic part of his expression. Stephanie, I think you just hit on the essence of this show, or at least what struck me about it is that it needn't be either or modernist or nature. These nature paintings are not botanical drawings. They are very much of the time in which he lived with influences of surrealism and fantasy. And I wonder what disservice is done artists of all types in trying to pigeonhole them? That's such a great question, because that's, I think, what really was problematic for Stella in his own time, and still to today, that he can't be categorized very neatly into this movement or you know, he worked with this group of artists. He was individual, not afraid to experiment, not afraid to to try out different styles. And sometimes we just don't know what to do with artists who who work in that fashion. So yes, a, a disservice indeed. But if you can open your mind up to someone who doesn't color within the lines, if you will, then, you know, you really can can explore and go down a really rich and fruitful path with Stella. I also wanted to mention your mention of uh, surrealism. Marcel Duchamp was one of Stella's closest friends in the 19-teens. And uh, certainly that influence and in, in that exchange is, is visible in some of his wildest works, you know, where you start to see figures and forms emerging from flowers, or you have these strange hybrid collections of different flower forms that create one single 
presentation. So if he were to be affiliated with one movement, maybe it would be surrealism. But even that he breaks apart from and, and does his own, his own thing. And I think we as art historians sometimes have a hard time reconciling someone who doesn't really fit within any sort of logical group. Well, I guess in that case, we just need to remind ourselves about Picasso. Exactly. That's a wonderful comparison. (laughs) From a non-art historian, I should add. Love it. Stephanie, there is a beautiful illustrated catalog accompanying this exhibition, and you are a featured essayist. Would you talk a bit about what you wrote. My essay was really, perhaps in writing it, a process for me and trying to understand Stella and these nature works. And what I hope to accomplish in that is to actually make the point that there is really a singular language. Stella himself describes his journey as swinging between these two spheres on a pendulum, actually, is the way he, he himself describes it. But I think he also, you know, I I did a lot of close reading of his own words, and he was a prolific writer, and, you know, tried to better understand how, you know, many scholars, wonderful scholars before me have interpreted Stella's work. And just through that process came to understand Stella as, as someone who was living with one foot in in two worlds, both, you know, when it was described that when he was in Italy, he was seen as too too American, but when he was in America, he was always seen as Italian. He retained his Italian accent for his whole life. So he was always struggling with, you know, who he was and how to present himself in in some ways. But all of that mix and jumble, I think, of, of his large personality equaled this openness to create a world that really was without boundaries, without limits. And and so that, to me, equaled a vision that he had that really spoke equally well to his American subjects, if you will, and, and these nature works. They're all one in one big pot, is how I, I think, uh, ended up imagining Stella's approach to creation. And that's why you consider him a visionary. Absolutely. Yeah. And he was thought to be a visionary in his own day, so much so that I think at at times art critics didn't even know what to do with him. He was on to the next thing and they couldn't unpack it. So that's a true visionary when, when you're sort of leading the pack. This show is in collaboration with the Brandywine Museum. Can you just tell us a bit about how that partnership came about? Oh, absolutely. It was it was really fortuitous. I remember having a conversation with the director of that museum oh, several years ago, Tom Payton. He was here in Atlanta, you know, for a conference. And I remember standing in front of our Purissima with him and just discussing how wild Stella was and how, you know, how interesting it would be to know a little bit more about him. And I know that Tom had already been interested in Stella a few years later. We got word that they were working on a Stella project, and we very quickly got linked into that. And then, you know, over the course of our relationship, I just ended up taking more of a lead in the curatorial role. So it was a lot of fun for me, and uh, it was a great partnership all along the way. Hi, Museum Curator Stephanie Height. 
The Joseph Stella Visionary Nature Exhibition is on view through May 21st, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans gets slimed at the Slumu Institute, and later, wildlife contributor Christian Cave joins us for Expedition Atlanta. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for being here. Last year, the Slumu Institute opened a new hands-on sensory experience in Buckhead. It's a colorful place filled with slime showers, a slime wall, various ooey-gooey interactive elements, and a sensory room with kinetic sand. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke recently with the slime queen herself, co-founder Karen Rabinovitz. Karen began by sharing how she first discovered slime. So, well, when I first discovered slime, I was four years old. I played with the Mattel version, and I have really distinct memories of being a complete slime fanatic, having every single variety that was the only thing I wanted as a holiday gift or any kind of present. There were epic fights in my house because I was not the neatest child. And now I'm flashing forward to my late 40s. And I actually was going through a very, very hard time in my life with a lot of loss, a lot of tragedy around me, and intense grief and mourning. And it, it was a really, like I said, hard time, and it put me into a depression. And one day, a friend of mine came by, and her daughter was with her, and her daughter was 10 and happened to have slime. And she had today's slime, which is handmade and really beautifully colored and scented. And I was very curious about it, especially because of my early childhood love of the non-Newtonian fluid. And... I said, oh, Maddie, I, I want to play with I want to play with your slime. I have to I have to see what today's is about. It was so different from the way I expected it to be and so different from the slime I grew up with. I was completely enthralled. The slime I was playing with smelled like Fruit Loop cereal. So the minute <laughs> I smelled it, it was like I was seven. I was at the dining room table and trying to construct my best argument for one more bowl. And of course, losing that argument. And four hours went by. 
And I, I didn't even hang out with my friend. I was just all up in the slime world with her daughter, talking about all the different textures, trying to understand the nuance. She was showing me all the things you do with today's slime, you know, how you can make bubbles, how it makes pops, how you, you know, the quote unquote satisfying all the different ways to play with it. What's a good play in a slime world? What's not considered quote unquote satisfying play? And when they were leaving, I really kind of realized that this semblance of time was my first time in probably two years where I had a genuine smile. Like I was saying, I was really, I mean, in a very bad place. I had lost my husband and nine months on the heels of losing him, I lost my cousin in the Parkland school shooting. And I just, I didn't think life could ever recover. I mean, I was living in a place of just acceptance of pain. And for me to have escaped pain in a way that was so playful and joyous was kind of miraculous. So I said, where, where do I just, I have to get more. And she's, she told me about kids online selling slime through their, you know, individual shops. And I became an avid slime buyer and I found myself getting really excited for my packages and I couldn't wait to open them. And then suddenly it was my secret Instagram account for my unboxing videos, like a child. <laughs> so these kids, wait, so these kids were making slime at home and selling it on different social media platforms? Or selling it on their own shops or, wow, okay. you know, whether they had Etsy shops or they had their own Shopify shops. And I, I found myself enthralled and I wanted my really close friend to experience it because A, she has two daughters and B, she was going through an incredibly stressful time as well. Her husband had a stroke and it led to a brain injury. And the result is that he is disabled and he doesn't have the ability to speak anymore. And he really can't do any activities of daily living without support. And she has a daughter who has a genetic syndrome with all the same symptoms. So her stress level was really through the roof. And I said, I know this sounds wild, but I, I have to give you slime. I, I know that this is going to be something you'll appreciate. And that began well, it started as weekly slime dates, which became daily conversations and daily playing with slime and getting her both of her daughters involved and seeing how her daughter, his, who is neurodiverse, really had this unbelievable happiness when playing with the slime, seeing her other daughter react to it, you know, just the way we were playing together. It was like this incredible, magical thing. And I finally said, we, we have to bring this to people. And we have a very different, but super complementary skill sets. You know, my partner, Sarah, is got a hospitality background based in guest experience and comes from a business management um, place and, you know, has her MBA and loves a good P&L and also has a lot of experience around building spaces. And my background is around marketing, storytelling, uh, I'm very heavily involved with social media. I was very early to that space from a marketing perspective and working with influencers. So I was like, our our joint skill set and our overlap is we have very similar visions of design and storytelling and 
where do we want to brand to be, grow like how do we want it to be and I was like we could do something together and we're in our you know late 40s now we're you know 50 plus but we're coming at it from a really different place and we could do something magical and a year later we opened Slumo Institute in New York and now have three spaces wow and the Sarah that you're talking about is the your co-founder is, Sarah yes. Schiller okay Sarah Schiller and I think the kind of one of the most important parts of our business is our philanthropic sensibility. I mean, we feel very strongly about supporting both mental health and neurodiversity. So, you know, we have hired adults who are diagnosed with, you know, on various levels of the spectrum and who are autistic. 85% of adults with autism cannot get jobs. We partner with Mind Up, which is Goldie Hawn's Foundation for Mental Wellness for kids globally. And the layers of that for us are, are just as important as the, you know, playing with slime in our world or kinetic sound and, and getting into that sort of mindset of play. But play is really healing. And play, when you play with other people, and whether it's your family or your friends or you're coming with your entire company and it's a corporate event, you're connecting with them. And you find that suddenly both of your hands are in the slime or the sand or the other compounds that we have. And, you know, time goes by and you're really in the moment and you're smelling all of our like compounds are, are scented and you'll smell things like birthday cake or vanilla ice cream or lychee or jasmine. And if you're an adult, something could remind you of your honeymoon. If you're a kid, you're like, oh my God, this is like my birthday cake. And it's this incredible feeling and you're delighting four of your five senses through the space. There's scent experiences, there's sound experiences, there's visual experiences, there's immersive video, there's the ability to make your own and design your own slime, which you take home with you. So it, it's a really kind of beautiful way to spend time with people. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about the creation of the slime itself. How do you guys make the various textures and colors and smells? So we make all of our slime with Elmer's glue. If you are in our basement, you would see legitimately an entire, you know, city block's worth of glue at all times. <laughs> and of the three types of glue we use, they have different consistencies and textures. So it's about the blending of various glues and other ingredients, whether it is lotion or glycerin or air dry clay or fake snow or various beads, you're coming up with, you know, about 15, 16 main textures, but then you start experimenting with blending textures and suddenly you have this never ending algorithm of slime combinations and, and ways to approach it. And you're really getting to play with all of them in our world. And they all live in these beautifully designed vats that hold five gallons. So you don't sort of get this in the, in, in your home this is like all the things you can't do at home, you get to do in our world. Right. So as you mentioned, uh, you opened the Slumu Institute in 2019 in New York, and this is such an interactive place. How did you all pivot during the pandemic? We pretty much immediately went into, within two weeks, we were doing virtual classes. And our virtual classes 
began as one-offs with each different texture. We started to see the hunger from our audience for this. So then we started to come up with curriculums, six week after school classes, six week, you know, week after week with the same group of people, Camp Slumu. We started to do corporate classes where we were teaching companies and this became the adult the, the adult's way to escape and ha instead of a drink after work or a company offsite, they were getting together on Zoom and all making slime together and being silly together because it really kind of brought back that sense of community and happiness. We obviously really kind of developed out our e-commerce offering and a subscription service and that really got us through a very challenging time. And then we came back as the world and New York City enabled us to come back. And, you know, we put in protocols such as alcohol wipes by every single slime. In the beginning, we always had wipes, but then we made sure they were alcohol-based. And, you know, what we found was that people were just really hungry to experience again and, and really hungry to get out and connect and play. And we made it through and are now in a time of spreading the slimy love across America. <laughs> so at the beginning, when people were doing this over Zoom, they could purchase some slime and do it at their home while also connecting with each other. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Karen, you have some Atlanta ties. I read that you are an Emory graduate and you interned here. I did intern there for Women's Wear Daily in 1993 to 1994. I'm aging myself. I was a senior in college and my boss then is still my friend. We still talk. I was obviously just in Atlanta and for our, you know, installations and opening and um, I spent time with her and she was there. And then I actually met some other interns of hers and I was like, oh my God, we all like all molded <laughs> under Anita. Oh, full circle moment. <laughs> yeah. So how does it feel to now have a facility open here in Atlanta? It's really incredible and kind of hard to believe. I never realized this is what I would be doing. It, it's actually, if you really knew me, this is the most authentic thing I've ever done in my career is being in this world of slime. I recently bumped into somebody that I knew from growing up and we were friends when we were, you know, babies and I told her this is what I'm doing and she started screaming like you loved slime like my mom used to yell at you for bringing slime to my house <laughs> this makes so it makes so much sense and doing it in a place where you know I sort of first left home and created sort of my own version of a life for myself outside of my family is it sounds really cheesy but it's really meaningful mm. That's wonderful. So for this location in particular, how will guests interact with the slime? Can you talk about the various immersion areas? Sure. So I would tell people to give themselves, you know, a good 90 minutes. Sometimes people are spending two hours. Sometimes people are there for even longer. It begins with first you have to come in and get your slime name. Uh, we got our name from a really funny social media behavior where we saw people online saying change the vowels of your name with oo and that's your slime name so summer would be sumor and i am kurun <laughs> and slime is slumu so 
that's how we got our name. So the first thing you do is you get your new name tag and you're wearing your new name. And on some kind of psychological level, you're giving people permission to be somebody else, which then gives them the opportunity to almost be silly and to let go of the constructs that they think they have to be in. And then you enter this world that is really colorful and expansive and scented in yummy ways and silly. And you know, to me, all of that is really healing. Uh, the first thing you then do is you have um, our slime and repeat. That's our version of a sort of step and repeat at an event. But it, it's, I mean, it's like probably 60, 70 foot wide um, and, you know, taller than anybody can reach, you know, 20 feet tall of a slime wall and you smear slime on the wall. And this is like what I was saying. You get to do things you can't do at home. When in your life can you smear slime on the wall at right. home? And <laughs> Might get in trouble. This wall, yeah, it changes. It's like beautiful, like the rainbow Peruvian mountain. Please, I'm begging you to Google it because it's the most beautiful mountain. And that's what this wall looks like. We have gigantic slingshot where you are slingshotting slime against a sort of plexi, but someone's standing behind plexi. So your boss could be there, you know, your mom, your best friend, your kids, the birthday person. Um, we have what we call the VAT gallery. And there's probably around 25 different vats of slime. Remember each one's five gallons. They're all different textures. There's signage near them. So you can learn about the texture. And on the wall is a video that kind of gives you the tips for slime tricks and making bubbles and pops. I find that people aren't really looking at it. They don't even care. They're just, you know, digging in and diving in. And some of the vats have little fun accessories, like a tennis racket that you push it down and you lift it up and slime drizzles down like angel hair spaghetti. And it's a great hashtag satisfying moment. There's a kinetic sand world where our kinetic sand is in what we call sand dunes, where we've kind of reimagined an individual so sandbox that is made of this like giant sort of magenta, looks like a crystal geode, and it's got black light inside and it's all mirrored. So it's an infinity effect of playing with kinetic sand. This is a, a place of escape. I think we really need that. And I think it's really healing for people to just play. And remember the simplicity of connecting with others as well as yourself. Karen Rabinovitz, co-founder of the SLUMU Institute, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. More information about their Atlanta location is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Fabian Williams, and I'm also known as Occasional Superstar, sometimes. My work consists of social and political commentary on the life around the United States, the world, and especially in Atlanta. I don't remember getting started in art because I've always found a way to use a pen, crayon, or pencil to, to draw. I do remember having a contest with my brother on who could draw a portrait of me and him. And my stepfather determined that my brother won and that 
rub me the wrong way because I'm very competitive and I've never stopped trying to improve since that day. What motivates me is the potential for the work that I create to produce a different line of thought and also inspire others to either get involved and create their own type of art or to change the way people think about a certain topic. I would describe my style as old school futuristic. Like I employ a lot of techniques that they use in the Renaissance. I'm a big fan of Michelangelo and Leonardo and all those Renaissance, Italian Renaissance painters, but I grew up in the eighties and I like street uh, artwork and I'm influenced by Kadir Nelson and Mike Thompson. Also, uh, you know, not to go so far back in history, but I really enjoy Norman Rockwell's work. So I employ a lot of wit, color, and fluorescence. I like fluorescent paint because it can be shown in daylight, but then if you add a black light to it, it creates another, another narrative. And then uh, with phosphorus, you cut all the lights off. All you see is the phosphorus glowing. So there's something else you can say on top of that. So it's like you can create three pictures on one. What influences my art is Atlanta itself. Atlanta is the home of a lot of cultural innovation, a lot of deep thinkers and doers, people that come from all over America and the world come here and find a way to start their own thing. And when somebody else does their own thing, it inspires me to do my own thing. So I feed off of the creative energy here and I give it back. I like going to Cabbage Town, curated by Peter Ferrari for his Forward Warrior program. I like seeing new artists at Peter Street Station, Maya Bailey's Creative Community Center. There's a lot of young black artists that go through those doors and the work there is getting better and better. I think in a few more years, like, you know, will be able to compete with any city in America. I feel like Maya Bailey has created an atmosphere of openness and creative exchange. A lot of like young cats come through there and they do their thing. Also on the Lee Street side of Monday Night Brewery, they have created a wall for the, the Underground Kings, a graffiti artists that have been living in Atlanta or from the scene. Um, I really like seeing their work sort of like in a format like what they've done. I think it's really dope. Even though I'm not a graffiti artist, like I can appreciate the aesthetic. Places to find my work. You can start online at Occasional Superstar on Instagram. I have a solo show in Miami at the end of the year, probably November at the African American Heritage Cultural Arts Center in Liberty City, which is Miami. Thank you. Artist Fabian Williams, also known as Occasional Superstar. More information about Williams' work, as well as our entire Speaking of series, is on our website, wabe.org slash speaking of. Coming up, Christian Cave of Caveman Wildlife stops by for our new bi-monthly series, Expedition Atlanta. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE.
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Last year, City Lights introduced you to Christian Cave of Caveman Wildlife. The Kennesaw State Environmental Studies student is on a mission to help us love and care about Georgia wildlife rather than fear it. Today, we're happy to welcome Cave back to City Lights as a contributor. Every other month, the passionate wildlife enthusiasts will share seasonal information and insights into the wonderful world of wildlife that surrounds us. Christian Cave, welcome back to City Lights. Hey, how are we doing? It's good to be back. Thank you so much for becoming a contributor for us. We're very excited to have conversations with you on a regular basis. Oh, I'm so excited. I, I guess that means I did well enough in my first one to get invited back. So <laughs> I suppose you did. So I don't know how it happened, but it is already March. I don't know where the time went. When you think about March in Georgia and Georgia wildlife, what are you looking for at this time of year? Well, this time of the year in March, I think for us people, you know, we think of the season of love as being Valentine's in February, but for amphibians, it's definitely March. Uh, (laughs) This time of the year, you have those early spring, kind of warmer days start to pick up, and especially the warmer nights, you know, where it starts getting up into the 60s and 70s-ish, and then you get these nice warm rains, and essentially what that does is it brings out all types of amphibians from salamanders to newts to various types of frogs and toads, and they just go to basically these temporary pools called vernal pools that uh, are essentially fishless uh, areas that get filled up with water. So you're looking at these like kind of shallow pools of water in the middle of forests and there's no fish and there's no aquatic predators in them hardly. So these uh, amphibians will go in there and this is like a local hookup spot, I guess you could say for all the salamanders <laughs> and frogs and things like that. Where they can find a safe place to breed lay their eggs, and then their uh, larvae will hatch out and get to, you know, go through the whole life process. When you're uh, driving around maybe late at night, and if it's raining slightly, you know, you you can tell it's a warm night. If you keep an eye out on where you're driving through, if you're cutting through some woods that has some water, like creeks or maybe pondish areas around them, you can actually see frogs and salamanders on the road. So, you know, you might want to drive a little bit slower if you can, you know, to avoid flattening the amphibians that are trying to find love on those warm nights. (laughs) And if I want to go on a nature walk and try to catch a glimpse of some of these romantic fellas, <laughs> where would you say is closest to the city that I might be able to spy something? Hmm. Um, some areas that I found some really pretty areas and in, in just good spots for vernal pools are uh, Sweetwater Creek uh, State Park. If uh, anybody's ever been there, if you walk along some of those trails in March, you can pretty much start to see where after a good rain, you start to notice those pools that I'm talking about filling up in areas in the forest. And you want to be super careful. You know, you don't want to leave any trash behind or any pollutants of any sort because they're, like I said, very crucial habitats for a lot of amphibians and water quality is just as important as no predators. Like late at night, you can hear like the kind of like the like the chirping of these things in the woods. And you, some people don't know what that is. Like, what is that? And I've told people like, oh, those are like chorus frogs or like whatever types of frogs out there. So if you hear those, you can help find vernal pools a little bit easier. You'll see these big masses of uh, like looks like gelatin with like black dots in it. And what you're actually looking at is either frog or salamander egg masses. So when frogs and salamanders mate, 
they, instead of just laying one little egg at a time, they'll often make these huge just mounds of like hundreds of eggs in one area. And you can actually just see the little larva. They're pretty like transparent and except the little egg in the, in the center, you know, and you can see the little larva growing up on the inside. And it's actually really fascinating. So that's one area I've noticed. But if you know of any places where there's just a good water source, like maybe like a, a nice creek or a pond, and you can find some areas off to the sides where the water is, like I said, still, and you can you kind of know that there's no fish or anything in there that are going to eat the eggs, you have a really great shot of seeing these. Sweetwater Creek is such a great suggestion, too. It's It's what, like 20 minutes west of the city? Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And so I was on your TikTok page recently, and you have a video with a creature called a redhead agama. Ah. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, the redhead agama or agama picticata is this uh, really beautiful species. And uh, they're super fast. And they get the name redhead agama because they have this really brilliant, or at least the males have this really brilliant red colored head. And they have this like bluish kind of gray colored body. And and then their tail tapers off into this orangish red flame coloration. So as you can imagine, this is a lizard that sticks out like a sore thumb, like the males at least, just in nature. I mean, they look incredible. And uh, I was down in Florida, uh, rooting around in the wilderness with a friend of mine. And uh, we started noticing that in these quite uh, suburban, affluent areas of uh, Fort Myers, Florida, you could see these agamas everywhere. Like they're just running all around. And so uh, we see these bright colored lizards. We spent like an hour chasing them. And finally, I got my hands on one. And they're absolutely beautiful. They're an invasive species, unfortunately, uh, meaning that they got brought here. We're not too sure, maybe due to the pet trade or maybe some other force uh, that got them here. But they do really well in tropical climates. And Florida's pretty tropical. And so uh, they do really well down there. We're not too sure of their ecological impact exactly, if they're really causing a problem, but I'd suspect they probably are putting some pressure on the native lizards down there, like the green anoles and other species. But um, yeah, they're beautiful lizards, really beautiful. As an invasive species, where are they originally from? Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so they, they have a pretty wide range from what I understand, and they inherit the like harsher, warm, arid environments out there. And so this video on TikTok, the creature is absolutely lovely and you handle it with great care. What advice do you have for us if we see wildlife? My guess is I'm not supposed to touch it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, admittedly, handling any wildlife, you know, uh, even despite as much great care as I can take, causes a fair bit of stress on the animal. So I try to mitigate it as much as I can. Uh, you know, when I'm filming a video, you know, we, we try to get it done really quick so we can get the animal right back out of there because, you know, they have no clue that I'm just trying to show off their beautiful red heads or brilliantly long tongues or whatever it is, you know, to the camera. They're just like, oh, this guy's going to eat me, you know? And so, um, <laughs> the, you know, the, the minimal amount I can stress that animal out is always the better. But I would say to somebody who's looking to enjoy like wildlife, maybe in a little bit more hands-on sense like I am, depending on what it is, like for example, amphibians, like frogs, newts, and salamanders, they don't do well to be held at all. So I always try to tell people to kind of admire those from a distance. That's just because they absorb chemicals through their skin. So it's not good when our oils from our hands or possibly any other chemicals we could have on our hands come in contact with their skin. But for things that are a little bit tougher, like lizards that don't have such porous skin, if you can safely figure out a way to catch one and, and admire it up close. I'd say, you know, go at it, have some fun. Be aware, they do bite. Um, like lizards <laughs> will, will nip you. Some of the five-line skinks and green anoles around here will nip you pretty hard if you, you know, if you, you mess around with them. And then, of course, snakes. Uh, I generally try to tell people to have the 
10 foot, you know, rule where you admire it from a 10 foot distance, just because it can get sometimes a little confusing to notice some patterns of venomous ones versus non-venomous ones. But, you know, I would just say, try to get out there get up as close as you can and maybe even practice just starting out. Try to get as close to a lizard or a frog or whatever as you can before you scare it away, you know? And slowly and surely, you'll start to notice that you'll start to be able to read the animal's behavior and start to get a little bit closer to get cool videos and pictures and just to experience them in general. And there's so much to see here in Georgia. I refer to you as a wildlife enthusiast, which feels a little broad. Can you share what type of animals you're most attracted to studying? Yes. I'd say wildlife enthusiast is a pretty apt title because you know it all pretty much enthuses me i guess you can say all types of <laughs> you're very enthusiastic yes. <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad to know um, but i'd say for sure my specialty if i had to have one is definitely going to be reptiles and amphibians insects you know arachnids kind of the animals that people typically see as gross or scary or oh you know i wouldn't touch that thing with a 10-foot pole those are the things that i'm putting right in my hands usually and trying to get up close with just so I can get a better understanding of them and then try to destigmatize them for other people. But don't get me wrong, I, I love the furry possums and raccoons and deer and <laughs> all that stuff and the beautiful birds that we have in the state. But for sure, if I had to have a specialty, it'd be those guys. If you don't mind me sharing a personal note on you, you are about to embark on an adventure of a lifetime. Would you mind sharing your plans to go to Ecuador? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I still can't believe it, you know, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm going to be going to Ecuador to tag along with some really brilliant scientists who are doing some incredible conservation work on this area in Ecuador. Uh, it's a part of the Amazon. It's called the Pitalala Preserve. And essentially, um, I'm going to be tagging along and using kind of my social media audience to bring more awareness to their cause of trying to highlight the biodiversity that's in this preserve and why we should protect it from gold mining that's going on in the area. And hopefully the efforts from doing uh, such awareness projects and bring more attention to it and getting more support for this preserve, we could actually get this area expanded to protect the countless amounts of species. I mean, I'm sure as you all know, the Amazon rainforest has biodiversity that's pretty much unmatched, you know, nowhere else in the entire world. And this is going to be my first time uh, going out of the country period. So I'm very excited, but very nervous, you know, to just get kind of thrown into the Amazon rainforest. But I'm glad I'll be there with some <laughs> very experienced professionals and people who are going to be guiding me and I'm going to I know I'm going to learn so much more and just see things you know I was joking around my buddies who are into this stuff too you know that no matter how much I study Amazonian wildlife I'm going to flip over a leaf and go what is that you know like there's <laughs> so much over there to see so I'm very excited well we are very excited for you what an incredible opportunity and we will look forward to visiting with you again in May and you can tell us all about your adventure Oh, I can't wait. Hopefully I have some great videos and pictures to share. Wildlife enthusiast Christian Cave and our series Expedition Atlanta. You can follow Cave's adventures on TikTok and Instagram at Caveman Wildlife. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. Finally today, a bit of sad news. After 42 years of entertainment, the Atlanta Lyric Theater has closed its doors. They will not present their final two performances of the Cabaret series, and the last two productions of the season are also canceled. 
Atlantic Lyric board chairs wrote that their financial resources are not sufficient to finish this current season or embark on the next. The board decided to dissolve the theater company immediately. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll speak with the co-owners of MJQ Concourse and hear about their upcoming move to one of the most unusual spots in underground Atlanta, the decades vacant space of Dante's Down the Hatch. Plus, artist Toki Rome Taylor details her exhibition, Insight, the Body as Artifact, on view now at the Hammonds House Museum. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier discussion about the High's new Joseph Stella exhibition, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelly Kanavy. I'm City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes, and we would love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We are at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey y'all, I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.